0: Show on Climate Change, brought to you by Hip Hop Caucuses. Think 100%. Hi, this is Rev Yearwood. We're back for a special four part series on the coolest show, and it's on trucking and Transportation Justice. We're on a short break right now after we wrapped up season two in December, and I can't wait to bring you all that we have planned for season three of The Coolest Show. But we just had to bring you this conversation this month. Transportation Justice is not discussed enough in our larger movement, and we want to help fix that. This is episode one, of this four-part special. I encourage you to listen to all four episodes together. They're all available right now, and they are amazing. Over these four episodes, we have seven guests who are some of the most expert leaders in our country on transportation, communities, business, labor, our environment, climate, and racial justice. There is work to be done at local, state, regional, federal, and international levels. Statistics don't tell the full story. That's why we have brought together these leaders on this series to really contextualize what our trucking industry and every single industry that depends on trucking means for the communities who are bearing the brunt of the pollution and economic exploitation. But here is one stat that I'll share so you can get a sense. You see, medium and heavy-duty vehicles, i.e. trucks, make up approximately 4% of all vehicles on the road, but contribute to 90% of all nitrogen oxide diesel vehicle emissions. And because of a legacy of racist highway planning, which we will definitely discuss more, Black and brown communities see the majority of this pollution. For example, in West Oakland, a cancer risk study by the California Air Resources Board found that trucks contribute over 70% 70 of the elevated cancer risk. West Oakland is adjacent to the Port of Oakland, where life expectancy is 6.6 years lower than the country average. And we see these same realities in communities near highways, ports, and inland ports across the country. In this series, we take you to three of them in Long Beach, Kansas City, and Chicago. Here's a thought I'd love for you to keep in mind as you listen to this special series. During the pandemic, we are all even more dependent on online shopping and home delivery. Me too. (laughs) But as consumers, we are all complicit. And I don't say that to evoke any sense of shame. I say that to inspire us to take action and take action right now. We can be a part of the movement to push industry and government to electrify trucks, which is part of the answer. But there's a lot more to get us to justice. And those solutions are what our brilliant guests share with us. I'm so excited we get to deep dive with you on this critical issue. Okay, enough of me. Let's get into it and get into this episode straight from Long Beach California. Man, I'm so excited to be here, and as we hop into this conversation uh, with Laura and Angelo, I gotta tell you, uh, Laura said we stay ready. So we ready to, we ready. We we ready to fight the good fight. Um, so I'm excited. Hey, Laura. Hey, Angela. How are y'all doing?
1: Good. Ready. I'm
2: doing well. Thank you. Thank
0: you, Rev. Uh, it's exciting to have y'all, and this is an exciting moment. Well, first, before we get started into the conversation, Laura, how are you doing overall? How is how's life treating you?
1: Yeah, life, life is good. I mean, you can't complain. It's It's been hard. COVID is is definitely here. We've got another wave of impacting our communities on top of all the other work happening. But otherwise, you know, we're, we're blessed to be in community. That's a privilege that not all folks have. Um, so it's been really nice to just maintain and find new ways to, to keep that connection with folks, yeah.
0: No, I know, I know we're gonna get right into the conversation with transportation justice and climate and racial justice. But off the bat, behind you, Lord, I love your poster. Defund the police. Yes, uh, that's a nice little backdrop. I guess is is, is, you, is policing. of the climate conversation
1: yeah definitely i mean these these issues are intersectional right we cannot talk about environmental justice transportation justice without talking about defunding and abolishing the police um without all these other systems of oppression including capitalism right which makes transportation justice so unaffordable or or makes it an issue right a lot of times so it's definitely at the forefront of the work that we do um, because it is intersectional
0: yeah Mm. I love that. And my dear brother Angelo. Angelo, how are you doing my brother?
1: I'm doing all right. Thank you, Rev. You know,
2: I think this similar to to Lauda, you know, it has been a rough year, but for our communities it's been a rough 500 years. Mm. And so, you know, we've been coping, we've been resilient, we've been fighting. Uh, but this year has been different in the sense that we've been isolated. So, with you know, in community, we've been finding these um, creative ways to connect and to lean on each other. In other cases, you know, we're able to commune, come together, lean on each other. But in isolation, it's a different, it's a different feel. And so, um, but you know, we're getting by. We're getting by, and we'll we'll, the the struggle continues for sure.
0: No, that's real. I just hop right into the conversation as we do as family does, but I guess for those listening, let me give the proper introduction and and, and bios. First, I guess I'll start with who you just heard was Angela Logan, who is the campaign director for the Moving Forward Network and co-founder of East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. For 20 years, Angela Logan has been advocating for his community and communities across the country impacted by industrial and transportation pollution. Angelo's life experience allows him to provide his perspective through an environmental justice and equity lens. Angelo serves on the Harvard Community Benefit Foundation, Board of Directors, Social and Environmental Entrepreneurs, Board of Directors, the National Environmental Justice Advisory Council, NEJAC, the subject advisory member, the Clean Air Act Advisory Committee, Mobile Services Technical Review Subcommittee, Ports Work Group, US EPA, and so <laughs> much more. He is one of the folks in our community who does so, so, so much um, for our, our people. And you heard before him, Laura Cortez, who is a lifelong Bell Gardens resident. Laura received a bachelor's degree in Spanish from CSU. Los Angeles, and her master's of arts degree in sociology with an emphasis in community development from CSU Long Beach. She has been a Spanish interpreter since 2010, including interpreting for domestic violence victims, health and immigration organizations. Laura's focus is to work toward equity that improves the lives of families of color through community-led leadership in the Southeast cities for current and future generations. Laura's current role um, as a community organizer and co-director for EYCEJ practices a distributive leadership model. And uh, she is also one of the folks who we just are so happy to have on the coolest show. But I've given the official, I guess, kind of official bios as we hear. But, you know, folks on the show want to know who is and who, and, you know, beyond that. So, Laura, if you can give some folks the kind of like your personal, like, you know, not just the activists, I'm out in the streets uh, with the fists in the air, uh, or or I'm trying to negotiate uh, difficult situations. Who is Laura Cortez?
1: Yeah, definitely. Thank you, Rev, for those beautiful introductions. for me, I definitely came on to organizing and just building community really, really late into my life. Um, I was raised in a community or raised by my parents, right, in a way that it was just, like, just do better, right? Immigrant community is just do better. Um, and as you do better, right, you can work your way into something better, right? So definitely um, I grew up with the mentality of go to college, get a career, And and move out, right, to some degree is is what I was told. And it wasn't until I was in college that I was exposed to organizers, exposed to movement work. Um, And there's where I began to, to understand, one, that I have, I'm really loud and I speak a lot, which is really good for that type of work.
0: That's awesome for being an activist, let me tell you. That's like one-on-one.
1: Yeah, yes. And so I, I did not know that I, that was a skill, right? That's just who I am. And so that I was able to do that work, but also so much anger that I had already have because of racial injustice that I didn't know that I carried with me on the daily. Because of of our communities, because of policing and and a bunch of other issues, right? I didn't even know that I was impacted um, by pollution. I didn't know that diesel caused cancer, and I'm in college at this point, right? Um, And so through that, I just began meeting more and more folks. Um, Angelo, who I have the pleasure of of joining with today, um, has been one of my huge mentors and being able to. Teach me, right? Um, but, uh, but guide me and also have like a discussion, right? It's never one-sided. It's always a conversation. Like, how does this impact you? Why is this relevant to you? Um, how, where do you want to go? Um, because we need everything in the movement, right? We need teachers. We need organizers. Um, we need mechanics. We need everything, right? And so uh, thinking about what, what that role is, um, it has been pivotal that my community specifically has created and shaped what I do now um because yeah. I, I didn't learn that in college um to be real um so that's that's a little bit about my upbringing and how I came into this movement
0: no, I love it I love that same question for you Angelo I, you know I I, first, I just want to say, man, I'm such an admirer of your work and who you are, man. Thank you for all you do uh so I just wanted to just put that out there into the into the uh the, the world, and they can hear that from me. But you know, just give me a little something personal, like you know, something that we don't know. You know, what kind of uh, what kind of food you like? You know, what I'm saying something something a little different.
2: different. <laughs> but
0: who is Anne Low? Yeah.
2: Well, thanks for having. Right back at you, man, for sure. Uh, I think this is a, a community. As we, if we've done door to door organizing, you know, we've tried to kind of expand that to national, and and hopefully we're we're pivoting to global for sure. And as we've been able to do that, we've been able to meet some amazing folks. And again, going, just leaning back into community at the end of the day, you know, um, for me, you know, I am a, um, my grandmother's grandson, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, she raised me in East Los Angeles for the most part as my parents worked, you know, 10, 12 hour days. Um, and so you talk about food, you know, um, right there, you know, last night I was, um, me and my son were making my grandmother's famous, you know, beans. And okay. so, you know, we're out there, you know, roasting the chiles and all the onions and so forth and cleaning out the beans and so on. So, you know, um, that food, you know, really helps to ground us and tell a story. Uh, but again, I feel like I'm on a journey. I'm that, that kid that was raised by his grandmother on a life journey. Um, and, you know, she, she um, taught me a tons of like values and principles. One of those is that, um, you know, we're all people trying to get by, but um, we all have a role to play in our community. Um, And we don't allow to see others hurt or or remain in pain that we stand up for others and ourselves, for what's right and for what's just. Um, And so, you know, to a certain extent, extent, um, that's who I am. Um, But I'm also a father and my husband Um, And I live in a community. So, you know, I'm one of, you know, millions of people just kind of like trying to get by, Um, doing my best. And I depend on, you know, community, collective leadership. Um, So, you know, I don't know if that was, you know, what you're looking for, but that's what came to mind.
0: No, that's no, that's exactly. I mean, it's you. I mean, you know. I mean, now that I know, you know, when I come out there next time, I'm looking for them beans, though. You know, you know, you know what I'm looking for. You know them. You know, you know, I'm, you know. Now you don't. Then you spill the beans. But I'm looking for the beans. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm like that. We, I'm, I'm, I'm ensuring that we break bread because you know I think it's important in the movement for us to understand how important it is for us to congregate, not around just uh, the board table, but the dinner table as well. And that we can, there's there's a beautiful thing around food. Well, I want this conversation to be something, I mean, this is an important moment. And to be clear for our listeners, I want this conversation here to be one with uh, Laura and Angelo to be in a master's class. So I'm gonna ask y'all a series of questions. I need y'all just to jump in. I think that sometimes our climate movement, our, our progressive movement, for sure, can be a siloed, segregated movement. And sometimes, even within our own movement, um, we don't understand the importance of other endeavors. So we hear about, for instance, you know, mountaintop removal the pipeline fights, you know, other things. And depending on, and then, we, then we begin to, to fight for attention. And that's not how movements work. We have to all work together. So I think that this is such an, as we endeavor, and particularly I'm hopeful that um, we have folks who will be listening, uh, who are on the incoming administration for, uh, all around, not just on the federal level, but on the, on the California level, and they pop in this conversation. They're going to learn something. So I want to make sure that, that I want you to hear that focus. Um, so as y'all respond to the questions, think of it that way, um, in a conversation, but just one in which, um, you know, you 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 want to you want to part give them some knowledge. So I just want to start with the basics. So this, you know, however you want to jump in. I guess on this one, start with you, Anslo, Then Laura, hop on in here. This is some basics. You know, what is transportation justice, and how does that intersect with the climate, racial, and environmental justice movement overall?
2: Right. Well, you know, I, I recently. Uh, heard i think it was you actually that said and i think a lot of other people are saying climate justice is environmental justice environmental justice is racial justice that's and it you, keep, sound like continu- you yeah that's <laughs> <it>. <laughs> and i would continue on to say that racial justice is transportation justice and so on and they're all interweaved right and we can't like we, we, you know as just Everyday people in community, you can't kind of tease apart the differences between all of these different issues and impacts. But you know, when we talk about transportation specifically, um, it kind of just narrows it down a little bit more to talk about um, the movement of people and goods and how that is justly, you know, distributed amongst the whole variety of communities, right? And in a lot of cases. Um, our communities as they are deprived of, um, of good, healthy food, of good, healthy schools, of, um, you know, the list goes on, but then assaulted with um, police violence and lead and diesel exhaust and pollution, you know, that's where I think transportation justice comes into play is that um, our communities um, are limited in terms of ability to have good transportation, good affordable transportation to get to point A, from point A to point B, but then also have an overabundance of exposure to let's say diesel trucks and trains and, and so forth. So it's the, the, um, the, the justice part, you know, I always say this when, when folks say, you know, you're working on environmental justice, um, yeah, we're working towards environmental justice, but we're working about uh, against environmental racism. So, mm-hmm. in the same in the same token, you know, we're working against this transportation inequity, you know, this transportation racism in our communities because we get an overabundance of the negative, but then we get um, shortchanged on the positive in terms of transportation. If you look at the corridors of communities in, in the southeast LA area. We have very limited public transportation um, options, but we have no limit in the amount of trucks that come through our neighborhoods. Um, you know, the 710 corridor that goes through our neighborhoods, traverses our neighborhoods, sees up to 50,000 diesel trucks a day.
0: Hold on, hold
2: on. Um, you said 50,000? You said up to 50,000. No. And that sounds ridiculous, but that is a real number. And, you know, Lauda and other folks in our communities um, have gone out there and done truck counting. The transportation mm-hmm. agency, that's a number from the transportation agency, by the way. Um, and with that comes, you know, just the onslaught of a whole bunch of issues, mm-hmm. right? And so we have uh, diesel exhaust, which is a carcinogen. So we have cancer clusters along this freeway. Mm-hmm. Um, you have the the ways in which the trucks maneuver across um, the roads. So we have tons of pedestrian and truck and vehicle collisions Um, and then those um, the the trucking system itself is competing with funds for our public transit dollars so instead of getting public transit monies we're getting money for expansion of this freeway you know which would eliminate hundreds of homes increase the trucks to about three times the amount of trucks that are um, traveling the freeway now And so it's a competition between the positive and the negative to a certain extent for us. Mm. Um, And so is that justice? I say not. And um, so that's an example of what isn't transportation justice. And it's complicated. There's a lot to kind of tease out of that, Um, but that's a a snapshot in a particular corridor of communities um, where we're fighting for transportation justice. Um, And there's examples of this across the country and across the globe. Um, but what we're trying to work towards is to a, a bit of a um, equal distribution of the benefits um, and reduction of the negatives. Um, and so we want to see um, the public transportation agencies invest in our communities, not in the trucking industry, or in the um, the industries that bring goods from Southeast Asia to the WalMarts and um, the Home Depot's of of the United States. It's important to have those goods, but when folks are suffering because of that, um, and at the end of the day, it's about consumerism and capitalism. You know, our people can't suffer because folks wanna get cheap goods in the Walmarts. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, um, that kind of gives you a little example of what we're working towards. And this is, um, again, across the country. Um, We have places like Newark, Um, right adjacent to the port there of New Jersey, where you have places like Savannah, again, like right near a truck corridor near a Seaport. You have places like Kansas City, I think you're going to hear from maybe later on this week, where they're dealing with the trains and the equipment right adjacent to predominantly Latino community. You have a place like Chicago, where you have one of the largest train hubs in the country, where millions and millions of trains and trucks Come through their neighborhoods you know assaulting their communities with diesel exhaust and so when we say we want justice one we want to get we want to stop uh the assault on our communities um and then on top of that we want that same benefit that those affluent white communities have in terms of having good public transit where we don't have to worry about getting on the train or getting on the bus and getting harassed by the police because you know for whatever reason um, and so When we think about, when I think about transportation justice, I think about the way in which all those things interplay, and then we can, like, you know, talk about all the other things that have to do with the the relation between transportation justice and the pipelines and land use and uh, power plants and uh, recycling, you know, centers and so forth. But that's just a snapshot. Um, Wow, that's good there.
0: At the heck of a snapshot. I mean, that was, that was, man, that was, that was, that was a lot there, you know, because you really, it's, it's so layered everywhere from the standpoint of the, the racial injustice from how these roads from the urban planning or where the roads are put you know, everywhere from just the basic pollution from obviously uh, these trucks and the diesel and, what causes from that, from the, the the cancer and the emphysema and the asthma, on top of literally um, the capitalist as, aspect of this. I mean, that was that's a lot. And how we pit, um, you know, sometimes our health against our wealth. Wow, that, that was that was a lot, Angela. That was that was that was important. I mean, that was important. Laura, anything you want to add to that?
1: Yeah, I think Angelo just took us down a road trip, which was beautiful, because I think Mm -hmm. it it gives beautiful visualization around um, all of the the issues and concerns that we have around our hoods. I think from community members like myself who who normalize this, right? That we live next up and up against um, these huge rail yards, um, these train tracks, these freeways, right? I live right by the 710 Freeway. and we normalize it right no no one tells us that there's different a lot of times we don't see mm. that that privilege right or or that other side and so um with with east yard one of the things that the first things that we do is is not normalize this right is realize that mm-hmm. this is not okay that this is not normal that this is not equity right that these issues are not um are that we're suffering from disproportionately from other folks, that we're getting cancer disproportionately from folks, right? That our health impacts and that we ultimately are disposable, right, to the world, to the government, because that's the way it was set up. Right? because that's where these places were set up, where we can't afford anything, but what's up against the freeway. We can't afford anything, but what's up against the, the rail yards, right? And so, and on top of that, right, when we're trying to commute, and Angela already talked a little bit about this, right? But even one of the reasons that we started um, our bike program, right, was because of the lack of safety, right? One is because we need to get to places and there's a bunch of truck traffic on the 710, but also, Because a lot of times we don't feel safe in our hoods riding by ourselves, right? Mm. Myself, as a woman of color, riding a bicycle up next to trucks when we don't even have a bike lane, Mm. right? It's it's super dangerous. Um, And so there's so many layers upon layers from us just decolonizing and understanding um, the health impacts that we are suffering to understanding that this is also uh, a housing issue, right? Because we can't afford to go anywhere else. To understand this is a health issue because we're dying disproportionately to understanding um, that we are just in the system. That So it's not just... We're not just fighting a transportation agency, even though we are. We totally are. But it's not just that, right? We're also fighting wider systems for long periods of time. And we're trying to dismantle systems who have been in operation for these 500 years that Angelo started talking about. Um, so I just wanted to add that onto it. But I think Angelo summed it up well.
0: No, that was great. Actually, I, wanna, I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to unpack something for me there. I need you to You mentioned something about normalizing. Um, I had somebody to me a long time ago who tried to explain that to me in this way. He says, it's kind of like if you were always sold from bo- from birth, uh, two left shoes, and then you just wore two left shoes all your life. And then you just wore it and wore it and wore it. And then finally you found out that no, there's actually a left and a right shoe. <laughs> and and you were like, man, my foot was hurting all this time. I didn't even understand what my foot was hurting. And then but then there's the original part when you first feel the good part about, woo, man, this feels good. I, I got the right shoes on. But then you begin to anger because you're like, dang, I've been wearing the wrong shoes all this time. And nobody, and people didn't do that. I mean, so when you, when, you, when you find out that these things are happening, these, these trucks, these highways, this pollution, is put directly in your hood. And then you, you you get that light bulb, as you said, that goes off. Um, what what happens next? Like what do you feel?
1: Yeah, I think in, in isolation, there is a lot of anger, there is a lot of processing. Um, for me, I was very lucky because when I as I started like denormalizing these things or decolonizing the way I was brought up to think. Um, I was in community, right? I learned that with East Yard. Um, and so I was able to be with other folks who were equally as angry, who were equally going through this process to understand. Um, and to some degree, we we already do, right? To some degree, we understand, right? I, I have this poster and it's like, yeah, we understand that policing is over-exemplified um, in our communities or over- used, right, in a very violent manner and it's used specifically to be violent towards people of color, right? We understand that. Um, And so we already know that there's a trend. And so that's what, when we see these things, then it's really not that hard to believe once we recognize that these freeways are there next to us, right? Um, That we don't purposely live next to beaches, right? That we can't afford to live next to the beach. Um, And so when we are able to do that in community uh, which was what i had the privilege of doing it, it is like a collective anger but also a collective like let's what are long-term solutions long-term battles that we've been fighting with like i am continuing battles that angelo has started right that mm-hmm. i have the pleasure and privilege to be able to move forward um and hopefully helping other community members also denormalize so that they can continue. Hopefully that battle doesn't continue into their lifetime, but if it come does, on, yeah, then, <laughs> then they'll be ready, right? Then, right. Then they'll be ready to, to do right. that. Um, and so I think that's, that's what it is. It is like connecting with, with our mentors, with our elders, with our young people, right? To be able to cumulatively um, be able to come up with their own solutions as well.
0: Mm. And so let's talk about this real quick and this, this, this friction. Right between that health and wealth component that uh, you were kind of getting to the end of your amazing masterclass description of heritage and justice. Um, and we saw this in this past election. And when you know, we were, you know, on one hand, we're excited about hearing about the climate plan from the Biden Harris and that standpoint that well, at least somebody had a plan, it was others that they had no plan. So we was planning for a plan. Um, that's pretty low, low, low bar, but. Um, and then, (laughs) but, but the the friction for those who are activists was like, but we weren't with the fracking, right? We was not with the fracking because we know what that can do to communities. And, but that was, was, again, that health and wealth, but we got to have this because this is a piece of this. So there's a part of that for our community, particularly for brown and black, um, people of color. Um, you know, there are people who have been trucking for 20 plus years as their main source of income. Um, and many trucking companies are also small businesses. So putting down trucks that you've invested literally tens of thousands of dollars into is not an easy or even feasible in some cases. So how can we ensure a just transition for freight trucking and truckers in this process?
2: Okay. Well, thank you for raising that because that's, that's really at the center of a lot of our work these days. Um, you know, there is a need to um, transition for sure, absolutely, no doubt about it. Um, And there's many reasons that we need to do that. Um, You know, one of the reasons that um, there's a huge discussion around transitioning from diesel trucks or fossil fuel transportation to zero emissions is because of the climate impacts that the transportation system has on our globe. And we know we're Mm -hmm. in a climate crisis and we need to address that for sure. Um, But also for us in these communities across the country that are in these, um, you know, freight or port communities, um, it's about the localized health impacts. We know we're disproportionately impacted by those impacts, both brown and black communities and other communities of color disproportionately impacted for sure. Three times and two times, you know, respectively. So um, that's huge for us, and who is it that is driving these trucks? It's the same community, the same folks, black and brown folks, people of color driving these trucks at poverty wages. And we know that when the um, diesel exhaust was determined to be a carcinogen, it was because of the health studies of truck drivers. So it's not just about the climate crisis, although that's major, and it's not just about the health and uh, well-being of the community members, but it's also about the health and well-being of the people that are driving the trucks, mm. right? So it's it's the whole, it's holistic. Again, it's all part of the, the same community at the same time, and so we want to make sure that um, you know you you can't go to work if you can't breathe. That's right. And and, and you know I've seen this actually. Firsthand, where I've known uh, people that have been driving trucks for years and come down with some serious respiratory illnesses, and they can't get in their truck anymore. So, we want to make sure that we're looking out for the health and well-being of um, those community members that are driving those trucks and bringing the goods uh, from point A to point B and supplying the goods to our communities. Um, but in terms of the specific, like you know, getting those trucks out, we want to make sure that these solutions are not replicating this like flawed system of capitalism, mm. right? We live in a capitalist society, that's for sure. But as we work towards the solutions, we want to make sure that we're not replicating those ways in which our folks have been taken advantage of and exploited. So it's not just about selling trucks. It's not just about, you know, all of these capital um, climate capitalists coming up and saying, oh, this is a way in which we're going to come up. Like uh, I'm not going to mention too many names, but Tesla, and
0: a lot uh, of the folks in the back of the room,
2: right? <laughs> and so you know, um, we got to make sure that we set it up in such a way that the folks that um, are struggling the most are going to have the ability to get into these trucks um, without having to, um, you know, it's it's like this, um, the I don't know this book Nickel and Dime, right? The folks with the lease have the hardest time coming up, the folks with the most prosper the most. Um, mm. And so what we need to make sure is that we set things in place for the folks that are struggling the most to have the most opportunity. And you know, if you have capital, you can get into an electric truck. And we know that if you're in an electric truck, your costs are lower for fuel, your costs are lower for maintenance. You are put at the front of the line um, to take advantage of the different opportunities of moving goods. So why can't we have our folks at the front of the line? Right. Within trucks that are um, not going to um, kill them um, because of the pollution coming out of the the, the, um, the tailpipe, and that are going to have lower costs for operating because of fuel and um, maintenance. So we want to get our folks in those trucks at the front of the line to take advantage of all the opportunities that getting into electric trucks provide to folks. And that means that we need to leverage resources so that they're not you know continuously um, you know taking an advantage of, um, and so, um, yeah, we don't expect folks to just, you know, especially the folks that can't afford it, that have been exploited to put down their trucks and buy these brand new trucks. We think we can set up systems um, in such a way to put them in new trucks so that they're benefiting from it, not um, you know, suffering from it financially, because at the end of the day, um, air quality is important. You can't do anything if you can't breathe. Uh, but also you need to eat. Right. And so we need to make sure folks have good jobs, um, living wage jobs, respectable jobs where they can put food on the table for their families and they can have a, uh, you know, the privileges uh, that other folks have as well.
0: No, man, you just said a, a mouthful right there. So much. on Two things that really, I mean, as you were talking, I just, I just realized sometimes you forget about, um, as we know, when we're doing a lot with the coal industry. You know, we see the same thing with those who are the coal miners who are getting just the black lung disease and getting the cancer, and they're the ones being exploited by you know those same folks who are trying to make money off them. Then those of us who are fighting against them, far as the activists, and we're like, yo, we in this together because you know with the mountaintop removal and the, the and the and the coal and the, and the water runoffs. That, that all that all that, and the coal ash—that's that, killing us, and it's killing you. We in this together, and somehow we didn't get pitted against one another as though we're, we're not in this together. So you just said a lot in regards to trepidation, justice, in regards to those same truckers who are mostly brown and black, and from and, and from indigenous communities are the ones who are driving these trucks. Are the ones, and you said, man, the ones that we can find the study because of what's going on with their health because of them. Because they're the ones driving the trucks, and, and they're the ones breathing in the air on the daily. And that's also affecting our children. And then these are also very, also very important, too, about um, the climate capitalism. I think that can't be overlooked. You know, people always ask me all the time. They say, Rev, you in the streets out there, you know, getting clubbed and whatnot, in the air, fighting for us to have clean air and clean water. And then one day, I, think I, I, I was forced to get a chance to go out there and visit Tesla. And I went to Tesla. And it was nice, very nice facility, you know, all that good stuff. And uh, it was like, well, dang, everybody was white. I'm like, well, hold up, man. I'm not fighting. I'm, I'm fighting to transition from the fossil fuel industry, which is mostly white people, to the clean energy. But I also need the clean energy to be people of color. I'm not fighting for this to be the same, you know, oppressive system. I'm not fighting for this to be all white people as well. That's a fact. So like, we got to yeah. fix. We, we need the new clean energy to be diverse and equitable. And so what you said there is very important. Um, you know, Laura, you talked about riding your bike, and I was thinking about those trucks and you you navigating the highways uh, there. And then I thought about, man, what does that mean when we put, you know, what could be 80,000 pounds or more, uh, which is the weight of the truck and freight, uh, in the hands of a computer uh, over, um, you know, a a one-hand man Uh, You know, how can we ensure not only the safety of our communities, but our trucks and our drivers, you know, do you believe, what are your thoughts on that, on that kind of that technology now as we, do you think that technology exists now or uh, what what are your feelings on as we computerize our EV uh, system?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think one of the big things that we've learned here at the ports of LA and Long Beach is this idea of automation, right? Mm -hmm. And that what we want is to be able to use electricity, but to still have people operating these jobs, right? We do not, we want electrification, but we do not need automation. And what we're seeing is capitalism doing its thing, right? Because they've been doing their thing and thriving at it for such a long time, where capitalists are able to just automate and they're like, cool, y'all wanted better lungs. Now y'all get no jobs, Um, which is exactly to the point that, that we were just talking about. Right. And so it's really important that yeah. we make that clear all the time, because that is what creates a lot of contention um, between labor and community groups. Right. And it's like, it, There are uncles. right? My uncle's a truck driver. Right. In Boyle Heights. Right. And so this is not about us and them. Right. This is about making sure that they get not only that we electrify. Right. But also that we get this local job training. Right, mm-hmm. that we're fighting for in all of these projects to make sure that our folks are trained um, to work on these big semis that may be on a catenary system or these Priuses, right, that are rolling through our hoods that our folks need to be trained um, in that type of work. And in terms of feasibility, which is what you were also asking about, Rev, it's, it, I, I believe that it is feasible. I think capitalism is just figuring out how to make a dime out of it, right? A lot of times, you know, what I've seen is these agencies that take 10 years to test the technology, right? Or talk about, we cannot transition to cleaner trucks because it's not feasible. And feasible, a lot of times means economically feasible for them, Mm. right? It's, It's economically feasible for the industry, right? Not necessarily, it's not focused on, it doesn't account for our health, obviously, right? But also, then when they do market it, it's marketed at top value, right? And so this is what we're always fighting for, is these resources, right? To make sure that they are going not to the big fleet owners that have the money, but to these local independent owner operating truckers. I love need that, vehicles.
0: definitely. No, I love that. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's real. Angelo, and, and how do we do that? Specifically, you know, electrifying the trucking sector could potentially require new certifications that many drivers do not have the resources, time, or funds to complete. So even with the resources, a lot of opportunities are not widely communicated to low income and communities of color intentionally, I will, I might wanna add. So what are your suggestions for programming to spread information on opportunities and make trainings and certifications easily accessible?
2: Yeah, right. Uh, yeah so I, I just wanted to say just going back to because this is also related to your previous question, and, and um, a lot of folks are conflating you know electrified or zero-mission uh, transportation with automation, and, mm. and, and we, don't, we don't conflate those two, right and It break, doesn't mean break, that we have that's,
0: a, that's an important piece break that down.: yeah,
2: Well you know, like as Laura mentioned, um, a lot of the industry representatives want to pit labor against community to say if you want us to go to zero emission then they have to be automated that means automation so they're conflating the two but we know we can have zero emission while a driver is behind the seat Um, and that happens that's happening now there's trucks on the road that are zero emission where folks are driving it we also know that there's automation that is not zero emission that it's still diesel but it's run by a computer or a robot and so Mm -hmm. they don't they're not conflated we we don't we shouldn't conflate the two Um, And our our position is that we want to go to zero emission with zero automation because we know that there's dangers um, when we talk about automation. Uh, The state of automation today is not 100% safe or secure. And we've seen accidents in warehousing, uh, we've seen accidents on the streets, and we've seen accidents and derailments on the rail yards because of automation. So automation, uh, for a lot of reasons, is not safe. And again, why would, Why do we want to replace um, those good jobs and those good careers with computers or with robots, right? Mm. So if these are good jobs, then let's keep them good jobs and good careers for our folks. In terms of the training, you know, this is a, a huge part of the opportunity. Um, when we have these local community-driven solutions, um, then that, that means that there's real opportunity for the community. So we see this as a way to reduce um, climate pollutants. We see this as a way to reduce localized toxic pollution. But we also see this transition to zero emissions as a economic opportunity for our folks. That our folks can be in the manufacturing of these vehicles. Uh, they can be in the maintenance of these vehicles. They can be in the fields of operating these vehicles and equipment. And so that does mean that we need to have uh, training uh, programs for our communities as we are transitioning into this we need to have, make sure that folks are trained and placed intentionally into these jobs and you know there's a movement across um, uh, the country in which you know folks are putting together community benefit agreements to make sure that we have zero emission transportation and making sure that the percentage of the jobs that are created in the manufacturing are from uh, are of uh, folks from that local community, and uh, to go even a step further, to make sure that folks that are um, hard to place into jobs that maybe were previously incarcerated or have other types of like barriers to um, careers are also intentionally trained and put into these jobs. Um, and so, um, as we think about this, that's one of the things about. Um, The way that we've been talking about this is the intersectionality of climate crisis, environmental justice, racial justice, economic justice, is that when we talk about local solutions, it's not just about, well, let's transition to zero emission trucks and leave it at that. Uh, Our communities don't do that because we're, you know, it's holistic communities, right? We also know we have to have good jobs. We also know we have to have good housing. We also know that we have to live on good um, soil and so on. And so the job piece is critical. And as, as we're developing these different types of programs or you know um, policies, that we embed programs into those policies to get to that question that you had specifically. Um, and you know, there's some legislation that's that's on the table now um, that speaks to um, helping to fund from a federal budget. Um, zero-emission transportation in the freight sector It specifically calls out that if, if the project that is being proposed to be funded for the zero emission is automated or has a, um, a reduction of jobs that 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 specific project is not eligible for the funds and that is is because um, community and labor organizations were outspoken with the legislator to say you know, we will not support this kind of legislation if it doesn't do these two things. Reduce the uh, pollutants from the climate crisis and maintain and create new careers and jobs for our communities.
0: No, that's powerful. No, I, I thank you for that explanation. So I guess that leads me to, you know, so how do we, I mean, it seems like, man, when I think about the ports, right, let's, 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 let's talk about that with the, the Long Beach and the LA ports, which literally is two of the busiest ports in the world, right? And so we're talking about really those 50,000 trucks a day that's cruising down the roads. And now we're now talking about the prospect, there will be many in our movement, but this is great. We get to this, you know, make all these EV trucks and this go to the ports. So let's let's kind of talk about that for a minute. You know, how how do we how do we achieve one this you know widespread? Electrified trucking, but then also, what are some of the issues that are happening right now in with the ports that are also impacting the communities around those ports? So, Laura, you want to go with that one?
1: Yeah, thanks for for asking that because, yeah, so so for folks who don't know, the ports of L.A. um, and Long Beach, um, known as the San Pedro Ports, account for about 40% of all goods that come into the country come into those ports. Um, And then from there, either take the 110 freeway, the 710 freeway, or just jump on the train. Go to commerce which we live just five minutes away or very close to that um to intramodal facilities and rail yards right or and or then they go to the inland empire um which is another huge huge warehouses that exist there up against communities right and so it's a whole system um so when we talk about the ports there's very concrete things that are that are being done at the ports through community pressure but these policies impact right not just the port area but the entire nation and definitely the regional area in terms of air quality and possible air improvements um, and so with that there's been two iterations now um, around the clean air action plan that have been worked on at the ports to work on how to implement clean trucks how to reduce emissions? Um, another huge issue in these in these areas is that a lot of oil um, come, or crude oil comes in through the ports, and there's refineries in the port areas. This is not news to folks because in Houston we've seen these spillages happen, right? This does happen across the country yeah. where we have hubs of oil and petrol production or crude oil being transported. Um, we are then we see right that we are in higher danger of health issues right and so in terms of local activity it is these types of policies like the cleaner action plan that improve air emissions that um apply clean truck regulations that one by themselves Do make a minimal impact. They do make an impact, but what it does is it also sets a precedent for the nation. Then New Jersey sees it, right? And it's all about sharing. That's why the Moving Forward Network for us nationally is pivotal because that's how we are able to share this knowledge, right? Okay, now New Jersey can do it. Oh, Savannah's doing this. Great, let's do that, right? Uh, And so we're able to share these to be able to-
0: Laura, real quick, for those who don't know the the Moving Forward Network, break that down for them.
1: Yes, the Moving Forward Network is a national network um, of organizations. Yeah, mostly organizations um, that work towards zero emissions. And that's how we started. We started on zero emissions with president, with the president number 45 that we've been having. We've been a lot seen a lot more threats around like NEPA, right, and the National Environmental Protection Act. So so the Moving Mm -hmm. Forward Network has also been pivotal in making sure that we keep the few laws that protect us as communities. Um, Mm -hmm. But oftentimes what we do is we just make sure to be able to implement any type of rule at any type of level, right, whether that's local, regional, state, um, to be able to get to zero emissions, so that we can enjoy the the air um, that we're breathing um, and actually Thanks. have a life to live. <laughs> yeah, so that's a little bit about the moving forward network. And so I think it's pivotal to be able to share these wins and these policy efforts, and also lessons learned. Right there, there are we're always looking to improve policy. Policy isn't always perfect, a- and there's always the political system is always trying to do a Take this to have that, right? So always making sure that we're not compromising our values uh, when we're passing these rules, like what we do at the ports.
0: So, Mm. Give us some of those wins. We need need some solutions here. You know, sometimes it's good for us to be revolutionary, but we got to be solutionary too. So give us some strategy and some of the wins that have come out of some of the organizations you work with or um, that you want to
2: pass on to the rest of the country. Well, um, you know, I'll start by just saying that the the biggest win is when we come together, Mm. right? And it's like building a movement is long and hard, but, you know, we're working at, at it. And every time we come together on some joint effort that's about the betterment of our community and our planet, you know, that's a win. And we're building family, right, across the country and across the globe. And so when you do that, you know, you're building a good foundation, You know, we don't have the house yet, but we have the good foundation, it's solid, and that's a huge win and a victory. Um, But as we work towards that, you know, we need to make sure that we're working towards these different types of policies that are ground up. So just the fact that we have gone through a process in which we are um, building community and then building that power so that the folks on the ground can determine for themselves what their communities look like, Um, is yet another win. Then being able to put that into a policy agenda is another win. We'll get to the point where we hopefully see some policy pass, um, and so that then we can start to implement it. Uh, But we're at the stage right now where a a specific um, policy that I'm thinking about um, that is really important is the Environmental Justice for All Act that was introduced by um, Chairman... Uh, and Congress member McEachin yep. um, and then on the House side and then just um, right before uh, Senator Harris um, was identified as uh, uh, candidate for vice president introduced into the Senate side. And so we have something set up for both the um, president, incoming president and vice president to act on. And we know that they are um, uh, amenable to that because you know the vice president, newly elected vice president introduced it into, onto the senate side. So the Environmental Justice for All Act is a piece of legislation that was, um, that's not just about a legislation, it was a full-on process in which we've never seen happen at this level before in terms of a federal, um, federal legislation developed through an engagement process with um, environmental justice leaders across the country Over well over a year's time, in which they're able to go back to their communities and go back to their networks and their alliances to be able to input and give, um, you know, the value and the details to implement into the um, legislation. So that's one example. And, you know, we haven't crossed the finish line on that yet. Actually, we won't cross the finish line until we really see justice. But that's one of the parts and pieces of the solution for environmental justice. Has a whole bunch of elements of uh, transportation justice embedded in that, um, because you know folks see that as part of environmental justice. It's not just about transportation bill. it's a broader um, perspective. Um, and so that's a sol- one solution, but again, going back to you know that doesn't happen until we build community, and through that we build power, right? And so, those are the solutions for for me. I feel like if we can't organize door to door, house to house, block to block, you know, then, and we think we're going to go to the federal level or the state level and have some big victories, that's all fine and good. But if you don't have that power from the ground up, then it's all going to fall down like a house of cards, right? Mm -hmm. And so, um, again, it's the same thing like with the state of California, you know, they passed um, the Advanced Clean Truck. Um, rule which mandates a percentage of uh, zero emission trucks still by a certain date to be zero emission a mandate a state saying you cannot sell um, uh, diesel trucks by this particular date uh, in the state of california 15 states have signed mou uh, saying that they want to work towards that same goal Um, and so there's a movement across the country even at the state level where zero emission truck mandate is, um, is on the agenda. Without communities you know, pushing their representatives um, and their elected officials to get over the finish line, they will have a weak uh, plan that doesn't look at all those intersections that we talked about earlier. We need to make sure if we're gonna advance a zero emission agenda at the federal or state level, that we need to make sure it's a just transition, uh, it's through a just transition plan that has job training at, and equity at the core. And that we're looking at making sure that we're not replicating these um, industries that have put us in this place in the fir- in the first place. Um, so um, those are some ideas. You know, we want to make sure that we're also uh, including in the way that we move forward with port and freight communities a way in which we are um, good stewards of the land. You know, recently we've been doing a lot of work related to. Um, uh, redevelopment, right, in, in, a, in a, uh, this plot of land that's right near Lauda's, um, in Lauda's neighborhood. Um, and I've been doing all this, like, historic research. Well, originally that was Tongva land, right? They were the stewards of that land. And then came along the Spanish land grants. And a, a Spanish family, or a, actually a mestizo family, was granted that land, and they became the stewards of that land. And then they parceled that out and sold it to Japanese families who then used that land to farm. They were then the stewards of that land. they parceled that out after the internment and they started to build um, industrial complexes in that area. Well, then the city government and the industries became the stewards of that land. And we are now trying to acquire that piece of property to make it into a park so that we are good stewards of the land because over time what we've seen is we've seen it go from a regenerative um, process to a destructive process. We want to take it back and we want to make sure that it's regenerative. So when we think about all of these places, seaports, inland ports, rail yards, warehousing, that is also part of our responsibility. We are now the stewards of this land And we wanna make sure that we're not being destructive, that we're being regenerative. So as we're developing the plans, like whether they're port master plans or general plans or developments of these different types of industries, that we're not just doing this um, in a way that's a a 10 or 15 year plan and we're done and we're out. We need to make sure that these um, lands are going to be healthy for generations to come, right? Um, so, I, I wanted to lean into that because it's something I've just been thinking about a lot. Yeah, no, that and was good. Ports are part of that that equation.
0: Yeah, no, that was powerful. That was good. That was good stuff. And just want to say, folks, if you actually, I had on um, Chairman Grahova and Congressman McKechnie on the coolest show a couple episodes back. You want to hear them talk about that legislation? as I was talking about they, uh, for themselves, their legislation. You can hear them talk about it. Go back. Let's go to the coolest show. Uh, and Check check that out. And you can hear them this to bring up that. And I agree uh, that legislation is important. I'm also excited that in regards to Vice President-elect uh, Harris, um, the fact that she had similar legislation that she had put forth with um, Cory Booker um, and Tammy Baldwin. So I'm excited that And knowing how the, when, um, I guess, when there was the uh, Obama-Biden administration, a lot of the climate work went through the vice president's office actually. Um, So I uh, suspect that as they begin to build out um, issues regarding um, uh, uh, the transportation and uh, uh, infrastructure, um, and obviously as we deal from the aftermath of COVID um and what we're dealing with here we may see that so that's an important lens so people should look at that carefully if you're looking for a little insight when we want to get a little how are these folks going to govern um you know uh we, we we look at that um you know I, I, this time I always go so fast i really got about two more questions for you both thank y'all so much and man you really actually helped me um to really just again always to broaden my aspect of what I see is the importance of transportation justice in regards to our movement. So I want to ask a question with that. That's, my, that's going to be my last question on that. I want to ask you a question about the movement. And so this is for both of you. and this is Not for either or, it's for both. Yeah, so you, won't, you can't, you can't duck this one. This is a good one. Y'all need to, so this is what you got to think about, but uh, I know y'all are going to bring it. Um, really it is, Is you know, we're talking about equity outside the movement. We're also about equity inside the movement. There's been a lot of discussion about how we, and I'm, we in this direction, but the coolest show, folks, you know, obviously if you're listening to it now, you know this show is, is intentional about being for black and brown and people of color and indigenous communities. This is the, the lens of this show. I'm very grateful and humbled to be just like the, the, the moderator of all these amazing people of color who get to talk about it. Um, but Sometimes this movement doesn't feel safe within the movement. And we've seen that. We've seen a number of organizations recently who have come out, and we've seen reports that they've been hostile to brown and black and indigenous people, the environments inside the organizations. And the environments. and we see that even with the funding, the funding not going to uh, brown and black and indigenous people. It still goes to um, large, big, green, white organizations. And then... When the money goes to communities of color, they get funneled through like a a clearinghouse, so to speak, and that it, it doesn't seem right. It it seems like folks are literally living on the front lines at the front fence, putting their lives. Um, you know, Laura said so well. Um, you know, literally um, understanding that this is what what was what was normal is not normal, and then fighting 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 that realization, all those things. So, you know, I guess you know. What are your thoughts on what can be done to make this movement uh, a safe place for people of color? And what what can be done in this movement to literally be a place where people of color are leading the movement as well?
1: Yeah. Thank you, Rev, for that super thoughtful question. And it's really funny because we, we have these conversations. I just had this conversation last night with community members around how do you feel safe in, in the movement work and in the space, right? Because that is, so, so what I'm trying to get to is, it starts with, with your community, right? That's, that's where it starts is, do you feel safe organizing in your community? Are you working towards these goals with like-minded folks towards that goal right or are we changing people's perspectives right and if we don't have that then then we can't move further right and so it starts with with that aspect of it right we're We're very blessed in that we have an organization here in Southeast, which in land, to be able to do that work, where we make sure that at the forefront we have indigenous communities, right that we're working with with indigenous folks, right that we're working um, with with BIPOC communities as well. And so it's really, really important that we make sure that we're addressing any type of harm that may come up before it comes up, ideally, but even after it comes up, right, that we're working to address harm at all times, that we're all stewards of learning, that a lot of, and, and this goes back to this idea of decolonization right that we all went for a lot of us that went to public schools in a lot of ways we are all colonized right and so we do need some degree of decolonization of working together to decolonize these systems together to fight um and in terms of like this idea of organizing, but still maybe not having the resources or not being seen as experts in our community, that does happen. That, And that, I imagine, will continue to happen. Um, I recently learned a term that I want to share with y'all. Um, I did not claim this term. It's called astroturfing. I don't know if y'all have heard it. I had never heard it. Um, and it's around like AstroTurf is like fake greenery, right? And it's around fake greens. And so I thought it was really funny and really clever, Um, but also wanting to share that there will continue to be these AstroTurf groups and there will be people that buy into them because they're offering these fake solutions because they're not grassroots solutions. They're not solutions that are made for our communities, right? They were never made to benefit us. They were made to do a little bit of improvement and liberate the the like the governmental like guilt right that they feel about not doing the work and so it it till the day that we die right we will continue that this work because what is the alternative right am I supposed to just not am I supposed to just move out am I supposed to just leave my community here right and so at the at the end of the day regardless of, of these AstroTurf organizations or fake organizations, right, or fake politicians, right, or whatever that looks like, we have to continue to fight. Like, there is no other way, right? And so I think I just wanted to add that, that in there, but Angelo, I'll hand that to you. Oh,
2: great. Yeah, it's kind of it's interesting because uh, when you, you, you mentioned that, um, Rev, and, um, and through Lauda's kind of uh, uh, comment on that you know the first thing that came to mind was uh the um the 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 non industrial complex mm. right because that's what we're talking about here when you're talking about the disproportionate distribution of funds and particular groups taking uh, certain leadership uh, when they're grabbing power and they're, gra- they're, they're working towards building empire empire not building power right, and the way in which foundations play within that. Um, And so when we talk about, you know, the nonprofit industrial uh, complex, you know, that's not going to really uh, transform our communities at the end of the day. We're building, hopefully working towards building community. Um, And we, again, we live in this world, so we're operating within this uh, nonprofit industrial complex as well. But I think that we really need to challenge the norms within that um, and we need to really push against um, the way in which even ourselves are reinforcing um, the, the racism within our own movement. And, you know, there's again, it's complex, right, because I don't necessarily see the work that we're doing as part of the environmental movement, as part of the environmental justice movement, for sure. Right. Climate justice movement. Um, but, you know, there's ways in which we think about them as like kind of just Merging together, um, so we need to challenge each other in terms of how we play a role in uh, enabling that. Um, I also just wanted to call out that it's it's you know, race is, is for sure you know a, a, a major issue that we're contending with, but we have other types of oppressive, um, you know, things that we need to think about as well. You know, what's the role of of uh, 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 patriarchy? Uh, and um, ageism and uh, we need to make sure that when we're thinking about um, equity and uh, privilege and oppression, that we're thinking about, again, all these intersections, right? That it's not just about, um, you know, um, one aspect of it. Because even within our own movement, we see acts of oppression, right? And so we need to think about how we hold each other accountable to make sure that we are uh, moving in the right direction, um, and in terms of you know the equity question, you know at the end of, you know there's a lot of conversation right now about equity, but I think what a lot of folks don't understand is that if we're really trying to embrace equity, trying to get at equity, that means conceding power. That means the transfer of power. Once people start hearing that, they're like, oh no, I didn't. that's not how far I wanted to go with the equity. Uh, kind of conversation, right? But it's really about whether it's about transfer of power from, you know, privileged white folks or privileged males in our space. Right. Conceding right. power is part of equity. Um, and so um, that's really important, you know, if we're talking about the um, funding kind of issue, you know, something like, I don't know how um, accurate these statistics are, but I heard once that out of all the nonprofit Funding uh, something like seven percent goes to environmental work, and of that seven percent, um, something like two percent of that goes to environmental justice work. So of course we have a disproportionate distribution of of resources. So if we were to say you know we want to embrace equity, we'd flip that, right? So the mainstreams would get you know two percent of what we get, and we would get a larger portion in terms of environmental justice, climate justice work. Um, and so, but at the end of the day, as, um, as Laura said, we're going to keep on keeping on, right? We're going we're to keep fighting for our community. We have no choice. Um, if that's with the foundations, with the mainstreams, um, you know, then better, right? We want to build a strong, diverse movement, but we're going to keep moving forward. We're going to keep organizing. We're going to keep building power. Um, and, you know, as the chant says, you know, I believe that we will win.
0: I know that's right. And I believe that, too, we will win. I just want to thank you all for that, both of your responses. And I just want to say for the young warriors who are listening um, to this conversation, um, particularly the young warriors um, from our communities, from black and brown and indigenous and people of color, um, those communities, um, please don't fall for the situation where um, it's, marginalized or be marginalized mentality. Uh, we don't have to marginalize uh, our community. Our only way that we are gonna win is through love and support and family. Uh, we, we, we don't, we, we can't, we, we're not gonna beat the fossil fuel industry um, as a divided, siloed movement. And we definitely won't do it um, as a movement um, that doesn't have love and lifting up through equity and voices and understanding the importance of as as was said so well um that people of color need to lead this movement uh women and women of color just to be <laughs> need to be leading this movement um and we need to we need to just have some real changes how how, how are we going to ask the world to transition if we can't transition so this one it there for the climate movement you know i don't want to I don't want y'all to turn off the podcast or turn off the sound, nothing like that, but I want y'all to hear this last question, but I, I know it got a little tight there for some of y'all, but that's that, that's how we win, y'all. That's how we win. We win by transitioning. So my last question, really, thank y'all so much for your time. Um, it's really just one, and I'll start with you, Laura, and then Angela, wrap it up. It's really just the question of, you know, where do we go from here? Uh, Dr. King says, you know, where do we go from here, community or chaos? And I feel that way about transportation justice, that we are at a crossroads with so many things happening in regards to you know, how the, the industry is, is go, what, what it's going through from the uh, electrifying of the, of the vehicles to what we're going through in our own communities. Um, where do we go from here, communities or chaos? So give, give folks a little wrap up on that in regards specifically to interpretation justice?
1: Why not both, Rev? Mm. Why not both? <laughs> um, no, I definitely think uh, with community, I, I mean, I think it, it all goes back to having a strong sense of community. And then it's multi-layered, right? The way we approach things is never one dimension. Um, and so it's about building a strong group of community across the nation, right? I work in my little pocket here, right? And I know, right, through the Moving Forward Network, I have met so many beautiful organizers across the nation who I know are doing that work to continue to build the leadership that we know exists in our hoods, right? And so from that, we are able to then do local movement, right, to create local policy, to create regional policy, right, like the Clean Air Action Plan to create state policy, right, to create national policy, that national stuff, I leave to Angelo. He's better at that than me. But um, but we do that work, right, in layers. And so, and whether that is having a legislative combo, right? One of the things I, I thought about earlier when y'all were talking is, is this idea of like, capitalists, all they do is lobby. And say like, we are just like, We have to fight twice as hard to be in there, but we can also do that, right, on various levels. And so I think whether that's talking to our electeds so that they get on board and providing that education, or whether that's mobilizing to an action to shame them because they didn't do the right thing, right? Whichever that is, I think that it's gonna be a mix of both. and there's going to be an escalation, right? Because we are at that time crunch, right? We are at that climate, climate justice has been an issue, right? Environmental racism has been an issue, right? But we are reaching a point um, where, where we're going to have to do both, right? Mm. And we just need to be ready, right, for both of those scenarios in the extreme, right? Whether that's working with government and, and politicians and passing beautiful policies, whether that's direct action, I think we just need to be ready for both um, and prepare our communities for both.
0: I like that. I ain't gonna lie. I like that a lot. I mean, that was all right. And little, uh, I like. And Laura has a little twist to it. Where do we go from here? Community or chaos? She said, we're gonna have to create a little bit of community and a little bit of chaos. I, I'm, with, I'm so I, I, <laughs> <laughs> So for as far as interpretation justice, where do we go from here?
2: Yeah, for sure. And, and, you know, I would say that, um, that it, it's time to, to advance, not to retreat, right? Mm-hmm. We need to advance our work um, and, in a way that's not compromising. And I want to appeal to all those folks out there that are engaged in transportation policy. This is not the time to compromise. This is a time to advance our work and demand justice. You know, we got momentum on our side right now. You know, transportation and electrification of transportation is right now is is a is a thing. You know, we've been working on this for some time, and and when we first started pushing zero emissions, you know, people were like, "You're crazy. This ain't the Jetsons, right?" But we keep pushing, um, and right now um, it's time to push and not compromise. And don't you know, it's not time to count counter organize each other, right? Mm-hmm. We can demand um, both like on the the sense of of the jobs, right? Good jobs and clean air. Um, We don't have to compromise between the two. In the same way, we shouldn't compromise on strategies that are market-based strategies. You know, we can make sure that the industries, like Amazon, is paying the price for doing business. They're making hand over fist in terms of their profits. They can make sure that every um, link of their logistic chain is zero emission. They got the money to be able to do it. They're profiting off of basically our lungs and our ability to, you know, the need for consuming the goods. Um, So we need to be bold and push for the demands that we need, not compromise. And I wanna uh, appeal to all our allies out there uh, let's not counter organize ourselves. Let's just push and be bold and demand for, um, you know, the things that both the planet, and our communities need mm. zero emissions now, for sure. I mean, trucks are there. Equipment's there. You know, shortly, uh, in, in, a, in a short clip, we're gonna see, you know, the whole slew of the freight system um, have the ability to transition to zero emissions. We need to do that in a way that is through a just transition framework um, that's rooted in equity um, and about the health of our communities.
0: Mm. Power to the people, I love it. Uh, come on now. Right.
2: All right. If folks want to find you, how can they find you? So for, for the moving forward network, you know, you go to the moving forward uh, um, um, and you know, we have all the links. We have stories from communities across the country, whether that's from folks from Savannah, Newark, um, little villages, Houston, um, San Diego, you know, the list goes on. So we have a bunch of connections to all of our network members on there. Also, uh, my contact information is there with our team, uh, Jessica, Candace, and other folks. Um, so come visit us um, and uh, we'll gladly respond to your emails. And we're also on, on social media as well. So look us up, Moving Forward Network, both on, I think, Twitter and Facebook. So uh, we got some stuff going on.
0: No, nah, thank you, Angelo. And Laura, if folks want to find you, how can they find you?
1: Yeah, I'm with Easter Communities for Environmental Justice. So we're very active on the socials at E-Y-C-E-J. So y'all can find us there. And if we're lucky, y'all might just catch us with MFN stuff as well.
0: I love it. Oh, man. Thank y'all so much. That's Laura Cortez, the co-director of Easter Communities for Environmental Justice, and Angela Logan, the campaign director for the Moving Forward Network and co-founder of East Yard Communities for Environmental Justice. They are our guests today. And I am Rev Yearwood, your host of The Coolest Show. Thank y'all so much. Like what you heard on this episode? Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. Follow us at Think 100 Climate and at Hip Hop Caucus on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Visit TheCoolestShow.com where you can take action for climate justice right now. You can also learn more about this podcast and donate to Think 100%, which is a nonprofit project. Thank you for listening, and all power to the people.